Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa's former president questions the country's policy on peace and security and European banks accused of failing to protect DRC palm oil workers. In economics news, Exim Bank Group expands its wings to Ethiopia. And in sports news, South Africa prepares for World Rugby Under-20 Championships. But first up, the news with Anusa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. The United States has recalled its ambassador from South Sudan after the leaders of formerly warring factions failed to agree on a unity government. In a statement, the U.S. State Department Ambassador Thomas Heshk will return for consultations as part of the re-evaluation of the U.S. relationship with the government of South Sudan. Given the latest developments, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo tweeted that Washington would work with the region to support efforts to achieve peace and a successful political transition in South Sudan. After a devastating five-year civil war, South Sudanese President Silvakir and opposition leader Rahik Machar signed a peace deal in September 2018 under pressure from the United Nations, United States and regional governments. Protesters have torched a military base and the town hall in Benin, the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The protesters were angry that UN and government troops had failed to prevent an attack by an Islamist militia. The Allied Democratic Forces had killed eight people during a raid on the town on Sunday night. The UN has an 18,000 strong force in the DRC, but its troops and those of the government have battled to curb instability in the lawlessness east. Rwandan President Paul Kagame has challenged his peers on the continent to take the issue of gender equality serious. He was speaking at the opening of the first Global Gender Summit hosted at the Kigali Convention Center. The main objective is to share best practices and investment to accelerate progress on gender equality and women's empowerment in Africa. Kagame says there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of narrowing the gender gaps that still exist. The fight for gender equality is really common sense. Whatever women gain, everybody gains and nobody loses. Indeed, let's remember that this is a gender summit. That means all of us are concerned, not just half of us. And finally... A court in Argentina has sentenced to Roman Catholic priests to more than 40 years in prison for sexually abusing deaf children. The case is part of a large investigation into the abuse of vulnerable deaf children in several branches of the churches. 
Ravolo Institute for the Deaf and Hearing Impairment in Argentina. The BBC's Candice Piat reports. An Argentine priest, Horacio Corbacho, was sentenced to 45 years, while a 42-year sentence was given to an Italian, Nicola Corradi, for the abuse of around 20 children at the church's Provolo Institute in Mendoza province. Prosecutors said the children were fondled, raped and sometimes tied up. All had a limited ability to communicate what was happening to them. Sign language was forbidden. Corradi, now 83, was also identified by victims in Italy of abuse at another branch of the Provolo Institute in the Italian city of Verona in the 70s. And finally, people in northern Nigeria are celebrating the renaming of the village from Area of Idiots to Area of Plenty. The local Amir announced the Husa language name change after residents complained that they had been mocked for years and were ashamed to tell people where they come from. The village in Kanu State gained its initial name about 70 years ago when people settled close to a river known as Idiotic River. It's not clear why the river has that name. And that's the news Headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Join Channel Africa tomorrow for live coverage on the latest global statistics on children and adolescents living with HIV. We will be broadcasting live from Sunning Hill, north of Johannesburg, from 11 in the morning with the UN Child Agency, UNICEF, will give us the picture around one of the world's most serious health challenges. Tune in to get more on why the world looks set to miss the 2020 target of ending AIDS among children, adolescents and young women. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Former President Tabumbeki has questions of Africa's policy positions on peace and security on the continent and the world. He was speaking in Pretoria at the Institute for Global Dialogue and the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung's Roundtable discussion under the theme South Africa in the World 2019. The event was organized to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Institute. Debo Mukoba reports. Formed in 1994, the Institute for Global Dialogue was established to help government in its policy formulation, and then President Thabo Mbeki was central in that formation. As a guest of honor at the IGD Silver Jubilee, the former president focused on the country's foreign policy. He decried South Africa's lack of decisiveness in its policy formulation and articulation, saying the country hasn't provided a clear policy position on a number of conflicts in the continent. Let's take the security element on the continent. I really don't know what our policy positions are about the situation in the Sahel. We are engaged as a country, as a government, in now the solution of the South Sudan problem. But do we know what it is that we need to do? A couple of years back, I were asked by uh, the African Union to observe elections in Kenya. Once all of that was done, there was uh, some state banquet. And the guest of honor was Benjamin Netanyahu. Not necessarily because there's anything bad about African countries having relations with Israel. But I'm raising it in the context of what impact has that had in terms of the relations of the African continent with the Palestinians. Because I think part of what has happened is that the Palestinian issue has regressed. What the South African government is saying about all those things, I don't know. 
His concerns comes at a time when Pretoria prepares to take over the chairmanship of the African Union in February next year. During its tenure, South Africa will have to see the realization of the continental dream of silencing the guns by the end of 2020. Pretoria is also expected to oversee the full implementation of the African Continental Free Trade Area, which is estimated to increase intra-African trade by 52% in 2022. But Mbeki has warned the country against the hype created around this plan. We are celebrating correctly the signing of the agreement for this continental free trade area. But we need to have a look at that thing practically. Nigeria, you will recall, hesitated in terms of signing that agreement. And I was very much on the side of Nigeria about that. Because Nigeria cannot suddenly open its markets in this context. Because it will be flooded out by South African products. So where it's trying to industrialize itself, it can't. So it's got to maintain some barriers in order to enable this thing to happen. Surely... IGD would not only be a resort, in a sense, to excitement as I would about the continental free trade area, but would look at policy-wise, practically, what does this mean? And therefore, what does it, what needs to happen so that the objective is achieved of this economic integration of Africa? It won't be achieved merely by reducing of tariffs. You need other interventions. Now, that requires certain policy decisions. He has challenged the Institute for Global Dialogue to help government refine its foreign policies and become influential in the continental and global politics. So I'm saying, uh, Professor Tifo, that we all of us celebrate the 25th anniversary of the IGD and indeed in the next 25 years, I think it must make a very, very serious input about these policy matters for this government so that South Africa must again assume its role in terms of helping to fashion, you see what it says there, a better world around that logo. And that better world and a better Africa, they require better policies. And in his response, the Institute's Executive Director, Dr. Pilani Mtembu, promised not to disappoint, insisting they will continue to instill policy sense where it's needed. It's a constantly negotiated space. We're a foreign policy think tank. Administrations change, personnel change within various departments. And whenever that happens, we constantly try to ensure that there is continuity in relations. So whether we're engaging with parliament, whether we're engaging with political parties, whether we're engaging with the executive, I think our task is to ensure that there is continuity in the engagement, irrespective of the different changes of personnel that are happening within government. President Beggy was central in the formation of the IGT in the early 1990s as a think tank to help the democratic government in policy formulation. I am Debumogobo in Pretoria. If the investigation by intelligence against controversial Gupta family had not been stopped, state capture would have been prevented in South Africa. This is according to former head of South Africa's Secret Service, Mo Sheikh. During his testimony at the State Capture Commission in Johannesburg on Monday, Sheikh was giving his t- evidence about the Gupta red flags and how then-State Security Minister Siabonga Tuele ignored the warnings. He, together with Gibson and Jenje and Jeff Makretuga, were fired by Tuele, claiming that the three had been involved in an in- irregular investigation which amounted to fighting personal battles. Njenje and Matretuga are also expected to testify at the commission. Numalizo Mandel reports. 
Mo Sheikh told the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Parktown, Johannesburg, that the agency wanted to investigate what they called created dependency. This is regarding the Gupta brothers notifying Figilim Balula of his appointment to the sports ministry before the announcement by former president Jacob Zuma in 2010. He said it was clear that Tuele did not want the investigation to happen. The minister wanted to hear from Ambassador Matatuka what are the reasons behind the investigation. Ambassador Matatuka took him through our thinking and essentially which are the arguments that we have covered to now, mm. national security, but I must confess, Chair, that the minister was having none of it. Reason left the room when we entered and we couldn't find each other. In fact, it deteriorated where the minister made this matter incredibly personal, that the reason why we're doing this investigation is because we want to pursue or further the business objectives of Mr. Jenji. Sheikh told the commission that he contributed to the drafting of Chapter 11 of the Constitution, which outlines the principles that govern national security. He testified about the structures and functions of virus intelligence services between 1997 and 2009, adding that during the negotiations and drafting of the Constitution, it was never envisaged that there would be a Ministry of State Security. Sheikh says the new structure established in 2010 led to the breakdown of coordination between different agencies. The principle of coordination, in my view, has uh, been undermined. So now we've gone back to a situation where each intelligence service, whether it's the security, the civilian intelligence service, or the police, or the military, you are starting to see the breakdown of the coordination, which is what the Constitution intended. So from the time these changes were made, you effectively have no coordination. In the absence of coordination, you would have frolics of your own, uh, the phenomenon of uh, disinformation, information peddlers and bogus uh, informants. He said former President Jacob Zuma undermined the constitution by establishing the state security agency through proclamation as opposed to legislation. We were not accorded the kind of uh, respect that should normally accrue to persons with that experience uh, and to allow that experience to shape the policies that was unfolding. And that was rather unfortunate uh, and it led to a situation which just became untenable. So in my view, um, it was a combination of inexperience in intelligence affairs and driven by narcissistic consolidation of power. Earlier on, Commission Chairperson Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo announced his decision to grant former SARS Commissioner Tom Moyane leave to cross-examine Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Goran. Justice Zondo said that this is subject to Moyane submitting an affidavit responding to Godan's clarificatory affidavit. Mr. Moyane is hereby granted leave to cross-examine Mr. Gordon on A, whether in laying the criminal complaint or charges against Mr. Gordon, Mr. Moyane acted maliciously. B, whether in laying the criminal complaint against Mr. Gordon, Mr. Moyane was motivated wholly or in part by, or he sought to advance the objectives of state capture. C, whether in laying the criminal complaint against Mr. Gordon, Mr. Moyane was abusing a legal process for his own personal goals that had nothing or little to do with a legitimate complaint relating to an alleged crime. That report by Nomalizo Mandela in Johannesburg.
Former chairperson of the South African Airways Board, Dudumieni, has made an appeal to make amendments to her original plea in relation to the delinquency case brought against her by the organization undoing tax abuse, ATA. The case has been postponed four times in the past two months. Mieni, who was once again not present in court, has failed to appear before the judge on several occasions, claiming that she could not afford transportation costs and the cost of legal representatives. ATA's lawyer and Mieni's legal representatives presented heads of argument at the High Court in Pretoria. Naledi Ngoba reports. Former SAA Board Chairperson Dudu Mieni has asked to amend and withdraw some of the admissions and denials she made in her original plea. Mieni also submitted a joinder application in which she argues that other directors who made decisions with her at the national carrier should also stand trial. Ngabaye Tubutelezi is Mieni's lawyer. And the two grounds for amending this plea, primarily as one, is to correct factual errors that occur in the plea, and two, to cure legal defects. In particular, it is a very long plea riddled with many paid denials. Now, we know what the legal implications of paid denials are, and I could not, as counsel, come into this case and continue with the case that I see as not properly pleaded. Advocate Carol Steinberg, who is Alta's legal counsel, says Mieni has failed to give proper explanations as to why she made certain admissions in her plea and why she now seeks to withdraw them. Steinberg says the basis for Mieni's request for amendments is dishonest. The, the first objection is that there is no proper explanation for the proposed amendments. In other words, that Ms. Mieni has failed to discharge her onus of proving that they were made in good faith. Now, we start with what her, her, main, her main explanation. Her main explanation is that her former attorneys, Mr. Van Nickick from ENS, made errors and omissions in her plea. We say, lady, that is dishonest. It's for the court to find whether it's dishonest or not. Our allegation is that it's dishonest. Alta says there has been no illegal behavior on the part of its lawyers in obtaining information about Mieni or in its interactions with Mieni's former lawyers and ENS attorneys. This after Mieni's new legal representatives suggested that there may have been collusion between Alta's lawyers and Mieni's former lawyers. I think it was quite, quite clear from the proceedings that there was no unethical behavior by our, our legal team and everything was, was above board. And it's, at this point in time, I, th- I think it's, it's just about, is the court going to allow the amendment of the pleadings? Is the court going to um, allow the, the, the joinder of, 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 of the um, other defendants that Ms. Mieni wants to add? And that's the important part. I think it's a, it, it, it was a bit disingenuous to bring up all these, these unethical um, issues. If they really do have a problem, go to the Law Society and complain. Proceedings in the delinquency case will continue on Tuesday, the 26th of November. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Pretoria. Tune in to Vision 2030 with Una Pateke and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One, hashtag Vision 2030. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective.
A dispute has erupted in East Africa over ownership of a dry, hilly, triangular land bordering Kenya, Uganda and Ethiopia. South Sudan claims to be the rightful owner of the land, named after a paramount chief who ruled one of the country's rural areas more than 70 years ago. Channel Africa's James Shemangula reports from Nairobi. The disputed 14,000 square kilometer triangular land called Ilemi lies east of Uganda and northwest of Kenya. Omo River, Ethiopia's largest river lying northeast of Ilemi, flows into Kenya's Lake Turkana. South Sudan claims Ilemi is its land. Ethiopian and Ugandan authorities also claim Ilemi is part of their territories. The dispute over ownership of Ilemi was brought to light at a meeting held this past weekend in South Sudan's capital Juba. The meeting attended by representatives of Uganda, Kenya, South Sudan and the Djibouti-based Intergovernmental Authority on Development in short IGAD, an eight-nation trade block in Africa. The three-day meeting was aimed at resolving the long-standing border dispute However, the dispute remains unresolved. During the meeting, Kamlas Ouma Omogo, IGAD's Director of Conflict Prevention and Early Warning Response, underscored the urgency of resolving the dispute before it turns into a diplomatic wrangle. We believe that and we probably think that if state borders is not dealt with now, it may increase the disputes and involve governments in some of these issues, which can also lead into diplomatic disputes. Chuol Rambang Chuol, chairman of South Sudan Peace and Reconciliation Commission, spoke of simmering tensions and responded to claims by the Juba government that Uganda is currently occupying areas around South Sudan border town of Torit. There was a very high tension, but now tensions come down. Although we are calming the communities, our relation with the Uganda government is good, very cordial, and they're helping a lot how to come out of our conflict. But this does not mean that we will compromise our territory. Kenya's representative at the meeting was Peter Kinuthiathuku, from the country's Ministry of Interior. He discloses what Kenya and Uganda have planned to do before the end of the year. Surveyors from Southern Sudan and Kenya will go ahead and identify the beacons and establish this exactly where the boundaries, international boundaries between Southern Sudan and Kenya exist. So therefore, we don't expect any tension. As Kenya and South Sudan plan to send surveyors to check on beacons at the borders separating the two countries, Patrick Mugoya, permanent secretary in Uganda's Foreign Affairs Ministry, speaks briefly about the road that Ugandan authorities have constructed in Africa's newest nation. The government of Uganda has opened the road. It's not that you are taking the territory. That road is going to be used by South Sudanese, by Ugandan businessmen, if Uganda says, let us extend electricity to this town, it doesn't mean you're taking the town. 
this is part of regional integration where what we have we can share with the South Sudanese. It helps to improve on trade. That was Patrick Mugoya, permanent secretary in Uganda's Foreign Affairs Ministry. Mugoya represented Uganda at a meeting that ended in South Sudan's capital Yuba, where the issue of rightful owner of the disputed Lemi Triangle was discussed. According to Robert Oakley Collins, an American historian and author of Civil Wars and Revolution in the Sudan, Ilemi is named after Ilemi Akwon, a South Sudan paramount chief of the Anwak, one of the country's ethnic groups. The nomadic Turkana people of Kenya live in Ilemi. They are surrounded by Didinga and Toposa of South Sudan. On the western part of Ilemi also live the Nyangaton of South Sudan as well as Ethiopia's Dasanech ethnic group. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Rwanda's President Paul Kagame has challenged his peers on the continent to take the issue of gender equality seriously. President Kagame was speaking at the opening of the first global gender summit to be hosted on the continent at the Kigali Convention Center. The main objective of the summit is to share best practices and investment to accelerate progress on gender equality and women's empowerment in Africa and around the world. Ntlantla Matlang reports from Kigali. Rwanda, a country that has been commended for gender parity, one of the few countries on the continent that has ensured that both the executive and parliament is well balanced, is hosting the Global Gender Summit at the Kigali Convention Center. The three-day summit is organized by the African Development Bank with other multilateral partners. Held under the theme, Unpacking Constraints to Gender Equality, the summit will dig deep into three dimensions in which gender equality and women's empowerment can be achieved. These dimensions include scaling up innovative financing, as well as enabling legal, regulatory and institutional environments. Rwandan President Paul Kagame says there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of narrowing the gender gaps that still exist. The fight for gender equality is really common sense. Women are our mothers, sisters, and wives, and daughters. Whatever women gain, everybody gains and nobody loses. Indeed, let's remember that this is a gender summit. That means all of us are concerned not just half of us. The president of the African Development Bank, Akinumi Adesina, says women are the best investment any society can make. We must ensure gender equality in all of our projects. We must fight against gender-based violence and we must expand voice for women to participate more actively in communities as leaders in project design, implementation and monitoring. We must change our procurement systems to open up opportunities for affirmative procurement for women and for the youth. And we must end all forms of child marriage. For the men, hear me clearly. Leave our girls alone. Speaking at a panel discussion, Ethiopian President Saleh Wagzeude says more still needs to be done to ensure that women occupy critical leadership positions in the society. What has happened in Ethiopia is the miracle of what a political will could lead you to. But 
the work has just started. I mean, uh, if it was appointing female representative to higher positions, then I think we could have done it long ago. But there is this gap that we have to fill. Um, we have to have women filling those middle-level leadership positions as well, and women grow along the ladder competing with other male. So we need to have educated, skilled women that could replace those who have been pioneers in that regard. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Glantla Masangu in Rwanda, Kigali. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says his administration is working tirelessly to ensure that gender-based violence is curbed. President Ramaphosa also says that he supports a call by women that people that are found guilty of gender-based violence should face the wrath of the law. He launched the 16 Days of No Violence Against Women and Children campaign at the Witbord police station outside Lepalale in the Limpopo province on Monday. Jabulan Baloi has more. I therefore commit to playing my part in ending gender-based violence by being a positive role model, a mentor, and not allowing any form of violence to take place without doing something about it. The president pledged to end gender-based violence in the country. A light of hope was also lead to signify the commitment to ending this scourge. Ramaphosa says that efforts are being made to curb crimes that are perpetrated against women and children. He has also pledged support to women who call for stiff sentences against perpetrators of violence against women and children. To ensure that those found guilty of gender-based violence receive punishment proportionate to the seriousness of their crimes, we are in the process of reforming existing laws around bail and sentences. This is in response to the demand that was made by the women of our country who complained that those who are found guilty are often given bail very easily and those who are sentenced are given light sentences. And we agree with that, that there should be no bail for people like that. Limpopo Premier Stan Matabade says the country won't realize economic growth if violence against women and children is still rife. The future of this country cannot be guaranteed without protecting and advancing the rights of women. Today, each one of us should raise his hair voice and say, count me in the struggle against economic abuse of women. Count me in the struggle against psychological abuse of women. Count me in the struggle against the bullying behavior of children at school and other abuses against women and children. Organizations fighting against gender-based violence have welcomed the government's commitment to end the abuse of women and children. Mbuisel Obota is from Commissioner for Gender Equality. We have a president who is leading this charge. So there is a lot that is happening in 365 days with this leadership. It's achievable, it's implementable, and it's possible. So all we need to do is call South Africans in that each, each and every street, every house, that enough and is enough. And with the president, as I said, taking lead, I think political will, we are seeing it that is happening in our country. Members of the public have also welcomed the launch of the activism campaign in the Lepalali area. They say it will help bring awareness. Abuse of women and children is very, very, very ugly. Every man must make sure that the abuse is not registered against his name. Everyone who has been uh, abused, she or he must come forward 
so that the law can take its course. To eradicate this problem, it needs the community and also for the parents not to abuse each other in front of their children. President Ramaphosa will end his three-day tour of the Palali area by visiting the multi-billion rand Medewi power station. He will also launch the district development model at Shongwane village on Tuesday. I'm Chablani Baloyi in Lepalale. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, protesters have torched a UN military base and the town hall in Benin, the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The official commemoration of International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women concluded last night at the United Nations in New York under the theme Orange the World Generation Equality Stands Against Rape and a court in Argentina has sentenced to Roman Catholic priests to more than 40 years in prison for sexually abusing deaf children. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. Four European development banks are financing a palm oil company in the Democratic Republic of Congo that is violating workers' rights and dumping untreated waste. This is according to a new report by Human Rights Watch. For more on this report, Kumbela Mujelele spoke to Luciana Telez Chavez, a researcher at Human Rights. We've interviewed more than 200 people for this report, of which more than 100 were plantation workers on the company's site. We visited, of course, all three plantations that are in the north-northwest Congo. We interviewed public officials in the Congolese government who have a responsibility to conduct inspections and ensure that the company upholds the law. Um, and we reviewed extensive documentation, including the environmental impact assessments that the company submitted to the government, um, some of them that were produced by consultancies that they hired, tax documents, um, and some documents that were given to the workers themselves, either for training or pay stubs that showed how much the company paid them on a daily basis. So we've gathered pretty extensive documentation over this year-long investigation. Now, surely a report like this takes a bit of time to put together. Over what period was the research conducted? Over a whole year. So we were for in the first plantation in November of 2018. And we came back in January, February to visit the other two plantations owned by this company. It's been also a pretty extensive process of consultation with the company itself and the banks that invested. We've uh, approached them to seek their comments, to um, seek their input, and to also let them know what we found. And 
We welcome the statement they put out. Uh, the four banks announced a number of measures they would be taking to address the abuses that we documented on the plantation, which is certainly very positive and good news for um, the people we spoke to who, who are suffering different kinds of harms. Um, but that's not enough because the reason why these things happen is because there's clearly an oversight and accountability failure on the part of the banks as investors and who are not ensuring that their money is not financing activities that are causing or contributing to human rights abuses. So we're going to be following up with them um, to see that the structural reforms also get underway in their institutions. Now talk to us about affected workers' health and um, whether they have had any access to any health care. Well, we interviewed, so there's um, 250 workers in the company's plantations who spray and mix pesticides on a daily basis. And they don't have the adequate protective equipment uh, that would safeguard their health from these toxic chemicals. Uh, the equipment they do have is, is inadequate. And they reported a number of health effects that they, they, they believe started after they got this job. Um, They got irritation in their skin, itchiness, um, postules, uh, blisters, and they lost, some of them say their vision has diminished and has become blurred. Um, And two-thirds of the 43 workers we interviewed um, who work with pesticides day in, day out, said they had become impotent since they started the job. Sure. And the company um, has established like compulsory medical testing for these workers, um, but apparently, according to what workers told us, they they are not getting the results of these examinations. Now, what needs to change, Luciana, then to prevent these abuses from happening? And what role would you like to see the government of the DRC play here? Well, the Congolese government has a double role to play um, because, it, of course, it has the primary responsibility to uphold the law in its territory. Um, it shouldn't force labor and environmental law to, to see that the company is meeting at least um, domestic standards. But it also has a role to play as a shareholder because the subsidiary that operates the three plantations in Congo, uh, well, the Congolese government is also a shareholder. Um, and there is a basic problem of capacity here with uh, many of the officials at a local level not having enough resources to actually discharge their mandate and, and um, uphold the law and protect workers' workers' rights as well as the environment. But I think the Congolese government um, shouldn't be the only one uh, that is that is left with this task. These four development banks are owned or majority owned by states. And they, they should also be making sure that they're, they're, they're not financing activities that cause or contribute to human rights abuses. Uh, they should have stronger oversight and accountability mechanisms. They should press the company to remediate this violation, and they should do so that without delay. That's uh, Luciana Telez-Chavez, researcher at Human Rights Watch, on the line speaking to Kumbela Munjelele. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective.
With holidays around the corner in South Africa, Right to Care is encouraging men to be circumcised this summer in order to remain healthy and help the fight against HIV-AIDS. The health non-profit organization, which provides prevention, care and treatment for HIV and associated diseases, says there's a need to debunk the myth that it's better to get circumcised in winter. To find out more on this, Channel Africa's Kumbela Mujerere spoke to Dr. Nelson Igaba, Deputy Circumcision Project Director at right to care Yes, it's very important for men to get circumcised and to be specific for men between the age of 15 and 34. And the reason is not, uh, is not far from what we know. It is the literature of the HIV epidemic in South Africa. We know that South Africa has the biggest HIV program in the world with 7.7 million people living with HIV. Is around 20.8%. And circumcision uh, has proven that it can prevent the transmission of HIV from a female to a male who is circumcised in a heterosexual intercourse by 60%. It is not 100%, but 60% is better enough. And coupled with other prevention methods like using condom and uh, using ARVs as a mode of prevention, we can get proper prevention and, and stop this epidemic uh, called HIV from progressing. Now, is there any difference, uh, doctor, between a circumcision done in winter and uh, the one done in summer? No, there isn't a, a, any difference between the two circumcision. What uh, uh, It's a myth to say that circumcision heals better in winter. The factors that determine the healing of a circumcision wound is, uh, of course, the, the way you take care of the wound, uh, your general body health, and uh, uh, like uh, putting in diet and many other factors, including uh, your immunity. But to say that circumcision heals better in winter than summer, that is a myth. And uh, being that we are speaking about circumcision, let's tell people out there sure. uh, what are the other benefits of, of, of doing a circumcision. Of course, apart from what I've mentioned, uh, reducing the transmission of HIV by 60%, it also reduces the transmission of some sexually transmitted infection. It has also been proven to reduce the, the risk of getting uh, cancer of the penis and also cancer of the cervix in women. So you can see not only the man gets the benefit of being circumcised, also the sexual partner also gets the benefit by reducing the chances of her getting cervical cancer. The other, the other quick one is there is better hygiene. Sure. There is better hygiene for someone who is circumcised than someone who is not circumcised. And I uh, would like to say out there that it is safe. Circumcision is safe so long as it's performed by a, a, trained, uh, a trained personnel. And uh, in all our facilities across the country, Right to Care works in uh, Department of Health facilities. Those are government facilities, your clinics and hospitals. We have people who are trained and people who are ready to circumcise and you have a safe circumcision. Now, how long does it take to recover from circumcision, doctor? What, basically, after you have, you have been circumcised, we recommend that you come back to the, to the clinic or to the facility where you are circumcised or to an area where you have agreed to be seen after two days, that's for 48 hours. And here we want to see the progress of the wound, commonly want to see if the wound is healing well at this level. 
then we also require you to come after seven days. So within two to seven days, of course, the, the, the wound has already started to fuse. And within those days, you should be able to resume your normal activity. However, we recommend that you abstain from sex for six weeks so that you, you allow proper healing of the wound. Sometimes you can look, the skin outside may, not, may look like it has healed, but the, 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 the proper tissues of, of, of the male organ have not fully healed. And if you engage in sexual intercourse with someone who has HIV at this level, you have a higher risk because this healing skin may be soft and may tear. So the message I'm putting out there is to encourage men, after you've been circumcised, continue abstaining for six weeks so that the wound heals properly. But for you to resume duty or to resume your school, it will not take more than three to five days. Now, you spoke earlier about uh, the role that Right to Care plays in helping to bring quality and safe circumcision services to men. Now, for those interested in getting the procedure done this summer, what do they need to do and where can they get it done, doctor? Yes, thank you for that question. Yes, we have the call center where any male who uh, is, is interested in having a circumcision at our facility can call in, then he will be booked in one of our facilities near them. We can even go an extra length to provide transport to, to bring them to the facility. And this number is 082... 082... 808... 808-6152. 6152. I repeat, it's 082 608 You can send a please call to this number and someone, a professional, will call you back and they will arrange your booking for you to get circumcised. That's uh, Dr. Nelson Igaba, Deputy Circumcision Project Director at Right to Care in South Africa, on the line speaking to Kumbele Mujelele. It's 7.45 and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoko. Good morning. The International Monetary Fund has advised South Africa to create a conducive environment for private sector investment and to take a decisive approach to implement structural reforms to boost economic growth. The recommendations came at the end of the visit of IMF representatives to South Africa. They met with officials from government, the Reserve Bank, state-owned enterprises, organized labor and academia to discuss economic and financial developments in the country. The meeting was part of the multilateral consultations that are held in the country twice a year. Tepamungwai reports. The International Monetary Fund highlights three main challenges facing the country, including weak economic growth, deteriorating fiscal situation, and difficulties in operations of state-owned enterprises. In a statement, government says it has announced a comprehensive set of structural reforms to support the energy sector and more specifically ESCOM. In addition, a range of expenditure reductions have been proposed to stabilize and improve government's debt and budget deficit. Tsepo Mungwai, SABC News, Johannesburg.
According to industry officials, South Africa is blocking arms sales to countries including Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in an inspections dispute endangering billions of dollars of business and thousands of jobs in its struggling defense sector. According to the four officials, as well as letters obtained by Reuters news agency, the dispute centers on a clause in export documents that requires foreign customers to pledge not to transfer weapons to third parties and to allow South African officials to inspect their facilities to verify compliance. Officials at major South African defense groups, Denel and Rain Metal, Denel Munition, said the dispute was holding up their exports, as it did a third big defense company, which asked not to be named. Zimbabwe is developing a roadmap to grow the tourism sector to a 6 billion US dollar industry by 2023 in tandem with the transitional stabilization plan. Permanent Secretary in the Ministry of Environment, Climate Change, Tourism and Hospitality. Mune Sueshe Munodawafa says that the strategic roadmap will be tailored to mirror the Vision 2030 strategy, which is anchored on growing the economy into an upper-middle-income country status. He urged the tourism sector players to come up with industry-specific ease-of-doing-business strategic action plans. Participants who took part at a summit last week in the capital Abuja have resolved that the mode of payment and execution of the zonal intervention projects involving Nigerian lawmakers are embroiled in corruption and should be reviewed. The summit on diminishing corruption in the public sector was attended by President Mohamedou Buhari and drew over 400 other participants from government, civil society and the media. It was organized by the Office of the Secretary to the Government of the Federation in collaboration with independent corrupt practices and other related offenses commission. Sub-Saharan Africa lags other regions such as Asia in moving away from cash to plastic money. One Nigerian company is aiming to close the gap by tapping into a growing appetite for smart cards across the continent. Secure ID makes a bank cards, mobile phone, seams and voting cards for businesses in 21 African countries to address an acute need for secure electronic cards carrying sensitive data, particularly in the banking sector. According to the World Bank's Global Findex database in Sub-Saharan Africa, only 43% of people aged above 15 have a bank account. The U.S. dollar is trading at 360.92 Nigerian Naira, 1073 Botswana Pula, 195 Kenyan Shilling, and 1439 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, a one U.S. dollar will cost you 420 Brazilian roll, 63.87 Russian ruble, 71.49 Indian rupee, 73 Chinese yuan, and 14.72 to the South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold 1,454 dollars, platinum 897 dollars per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at 63 dollars 65 cents a barrel. This is Channel Africa, and I'm Tabiso Lohoku.
A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, let's kick off with football news. South African men's under-23 coach David Notana says he will consider selecting over-age players for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics in Japan. Three over-age players are allowed per team in the tournament. South Africa head goalkeeper Idumelon Kune and defender Eric Matoho as two over-age players at the 2016 Rio Olympics in Brazil. Egypt have already indicated that Liverpool superstar Mo Salah will be part of their squad. The matter of uh, overage players, of course, uh, is always there. So we'll sit with the senior coach, of course, uh, identify uh, which players, based also on our technical analysis of what are the requirements, can come in and uh, assist us. And uh, you will be informed accordingly in due course. Uh, because it's one thing to say, uh, yes, I want this player, and it's another thing to see if the players are available and remember this tournament comes in in the preseason as well so it's not just as easy as it is but of course we'll consider experience because it's a very very massive uh, tournament and in this, despite Zinedine's dance interference that Neymar would indeed start tonight's Champions League match between Paris Saint-Germain and Real Madrid Thomas Tuchel is still yet to make a decision and is facing a difficult choice regarding the Brazilian's fitness. Having missed Neymar for over a month, Tuchel has just welcomed the former Santos star back to training. Yet, his apparent readiness for first-team football could change his plans. Of late, Mauro Icardi has found his feet in the French capital alongside Kylian Mbappe, Angel Di Maria and Edison Cavani. Asked on which player he'd rather have, Neymar or Mbappe, here's what Tuchel had to say no no we cannot we cannot uh, judge players over other players and uh, i like this player more and he is more important it's not like this it's not like this and we talk about two offensive player which i which i really really love a lot but uh, we have to say with two guys more tomorrow on the pitch we will not win her huh? on to rugby news rugby world cup winner cheslin colby is named the top 14s player of the season last night and the french league announced the edit ceremony in paris 26 year old colby lifted the web ellis trophy with the springboks earlier this month after having helped the club to lose to the French domestic title in June. The winger who made his international debut after joining Toulouse in 2017 scored six tries in 16 league appearances before Hugo Mola's side lifted the Bouclier de Brenu for a record extending 20th time at the Stade de France. Colby also won the award for the best top 14 player at the World Cup beating Fiji's Semi Radradra and Francis Damien Panou as well as winning the award for the entry or the try of the campaign now a key world anti-doping agency water panel has recommended russia be barred from all sporting competition for four years after accusing moscow of falsifying laboratory data handed over to investigators the global anti-doping watchdog said last night and here's the bbc's alex Kepstein with more Last week, an independent panel concluded that Russia had doctored electronic data stored in a Moscow laboratory in a bid to cover up positive drug tests. It was linked to the huge scandal discovered in 2015, in which the country was accused of a state-sponsored and systematic doping conspiracy. WADA, which lifted Russia's suspension in September last year, has now been asked to implement a four-year ban for this latest violation. 
If accepted, the Russian flag would be barred from big sporting events, including the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and the 2022 World Cup. A decision is expected on December the 9th, but if the recommendation is accepted, it's likely to be challenged at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa's former president questions the country's policy on peace and security, and European banks accused of failing to protect DRC palm oil workers. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gavu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of our folding news is AKA featuring Yanga with a song titled Jiga. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
I'm begging for the soul of 